Welcome to What Does This Mean? A discussion of the readings that we read in the Lutheran Church and many churches around the world. Today we'll read three different passages of scripture encouraging us to live in the light of Easter joy even when we face a complicated, diverse, or challenging world, and even when we may feel abandoned or persecuted. We're so glad that you've chosen to join us. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. And I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. We're the pastors at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And for the next few minutes, we're going to discuss the readings that are coming up in church on Sunday. Not only will that help us think about the readings as we prepare for our worship service and our sermon, but we also hope that it might help you as you go about your days even during this time when we are keeping social distance from each other. For this season of our podcast, we're inviting special guests to help us talk about the readings as we've been doing. And we invite them to think about any question that they'd like to ask us. Our special guest today is Anders Knudsen. Welcome, Anders. We're so glad that you're online with us here. Uh, Before we start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a fan of the podcast and a fan of the pastors at Gloria Day. So thank you so much for including me in the podcast. That's why we invited you, Anders, just so you would say that. (laughs) Uh, Our family has been a member of Gloria Day for about 20 years. For the first 10 years, I was involved in the Sunday school. For the last 10 years, I've been involved in confirmation, serving as a confirmation mentor. I'm a physician with Midwest Radiology, mainly working at United Hospital. In addition to my clinical duties, I have some administrative responsibilities. Uh, At the moment, I'm serving as a member of the Alina Health Board of Directors. Um, I live in St. Paul with my wife, Sally. We just celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. And our daughter, Kristen, is in Hanover, New Hampshire, doing public health research and has just decided to pursue a PhD in public health at Emory University in Atlanta. So the Knutson family is going to be discovering Atlanta. Great. And I will be happy to talk with you about Atlanta. I lived there for 17 years, so it's a place very close to my heart. I like to pretend I'm a little bit Southern after living there for so long. Your accent comes out every once in a while. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Anders. We're so honored that you choose to be with us as as we record. Let's jump in. Pastor Bradley, would you read our first reading for us? I would love to. The first reading is from the 17th chapter in Acts, verses 22 through 31. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It helps me in looking at scripture sometimes to imagine myself in the setting of the, of the reading. And so I was imagining myself in this great hall, it's a gathering of the great philosophers and the intellectual center of the Western world. And Paul is giving this, I think, wonderful speech. And it's a speech that really resonates me. It's the creator God, man searching or seeking for God, which is something that, that has really been a part of my life. Um, and, and then at the end, to me, the gospel is always a balance between love and judgment. And at the end... Paul talks about the judgment. And my question is, why do you think he didn't talk about love and talk about judgment? I think that's a really good question. And maybe to jump in with an answer, I think it maybe it's good to separate a little bit from how we as Westerners tend to think about judgment, which is often like, I'm going to heaven and some people are going to hell. Whereas biblically, like this call to repent is to like turn around and live in a different kind of way. And it seems like that's really what Paul is calling the Athenians to, is to live differently. And I kind of think about judgment as something we tend to bring on ourselves in this world when we live in a way that is counter to God's abundance or love or justice, a kind of reap what you sow sort of thing rather than a big end time kind of judgment. Yeah, I think it's always helpful. That's a helpful reminder to me that I think we hear the word judgment and assume immediately it's a negative thing and that it's applied to us negatively. Like, because I'm a terrible sinner, judgment means that, that I'm not going to be saved or something. And I think it's helpful to for me to think that judgment is actually just God setting the world right. And all of that we long for in the world, justice and goodness, and all of that is what God 
has in mind when when we talk about judgment that it's judgment means the world will be made right that's helpful that's a more positive spin i think on that word that we mostly hear negatively i also love the phrase in 27 and 28 just the sense of that god is very near us i think when we when we think of either love or justice it's as if you know when when god loves us we feel close to god and God's inspiring and encouraging us and urging us forward or or comforting us in our pain and judgment, you know, like we've been pushed away from God or that we've chosen to be far away from God and therefore God kind of abandons us. But I think in, in reality and in Paul's understanding, God is always right with us. You know, we are, we move inside God and, and that the love and justice are are woven into how God longs for us to experience life in its fullness and that it's, it's right there. So that if we ignore, ignore the judgment, we're also kind of ignoring the love. It's, it's uh, of a piece. Do you remember that palm olive commercial for dish soap? They're at the salon or whatever. And the woman's hand is in the bowl. She thinks she's getting her nails done and she's actually got them in the palm olive dishwashing liquid and it's like you're soaking in it and i just to me i always think of that in this god in whom we live and move and have our being it's like we're already soaking in it the athenians are used to gods who are making them go through all kinds of things in order to gain their favor you know the greek gods were capricious and cruel with human beings pitting them against one another and requiring them to go to great these great tests to prove their loyalty and Paul is saying no god is fundamentally different than that you're already in god i think it's a jesuit principle that god is all god is in all things and god meets us where we are i was thinking also of that passage from john about um abiding in God, we abide in God and God abides in us. And just that sense of abiding and dwelling in God, I feel like that idea is woven throughout our scriptures, which is very different from other other ways of imagining, like the Greek gods, as you were saying, Pastor Bradley, like it's a very different concept of how we relate to a God. <laughs> well, and did we say this last week? I, I feel like we've talked about this recently, but um, you know, the whole Greek God uh, uh, understanding of they toy with humans. They're like using the humans as props for their own rivalries with each other. And and Paul's emphasizing, it's like, God's not using us that way. God's not looking at us to try and, you know, seduce something or be seduced by a God. You know, just like, no, God is already part of our lives, longing for us to recognize how much we are Im- immersed in, in the beauty of God's love. And, and judgment, that it's, again, it's all of one piece. Maybe that's a good place for us to pause and move on to our next reading. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Our second reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. You've probably noticed in the last few weeks, we're doing a whole little series on 1 Peter here. Who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Well, I've always loved the combination of grit and humility that Peter characterizes as part of the Christian way. I have to say, at this moment, reading through this, the, the passage that tripped me up a bit was this whole notion of suffering as God's will. And I understand that they're putting in the context of suffering for your Christian conduct. And I've always kind of felt like suffering was part of the human condition. And certainly in healthcare, I've seen a fair amount of suffering. I've always struggled with this phrase or this notion of suffering as God's will. I, I wonder if in some places in Scripture, some of the reflections about suffering come from a post-suffering perspective Looking back on a time of pain and suffering, you can sometimes better see how you are how you were changed or what God was doing even in that uh, difficult time. I think particularly of John of the Cross, who was this uh, medieval kind of mystic who challenged the monastic order. Uh, its wealth and its privilege, and he was called back to like a vow of poverty and service. Well, they threw him into prison, and he was uh, in this tiny little cell and beaten for months and months and months. And he called it the dark night of the soul, this like really this time of suffering. But in the end, as he goes forward and writes about that experience, he talks about God's work in the midst of that suffering. And for him, the suffering becomes part of God's will, not in a sense that God caused that, but in a sense that God was able to use that to bring him to new insight, to deeper awareness of love. 
I've been thinking a lot about how how much of the Bible is written in places of suffering. I should go back and really kind of re reteach myself some of the stuff I learned in seminary, but I remember always learning any of the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament were, well, remember this was written when they were in exile or these prophets spoke because they were, they had been taken off into exile and these things happened and they shaped the whole previous understanding of who, uh, of how God was working in the ancient scriptures that had only been told in oral tradition. And they started actually incorporating it into a, a path of scripture, like a whole flow of books and scrolls and stories. And and then Paul in prison writing all of this stuff. The 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 apostles certainly remembering but reflecting on Jesus when their lives were under persecution. And and even church history, if we think of Martin Luther saying uh, St. John that you're talking about, Pastor Bradley, or Luther writing um, up in the in the castle when he was being condemned by the church. And how much of theology and actually thinking about where God is working in our lives was written or thought of kind of produced in a way under suffering and how that shapes then so much of it, you know, acts like suffering is good. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't really see that it's good, but I, I can see that in places of where we feel forsaken, you know, by the river of Babylon, you ask me to sing these foreign, you know, my, my songs of faith in this foreign place, I can't do it. And sometimes I think some of this pandemic, we, we overblow a little bit about how hard this is for us. For many, many of us, it's not hard to say, stay home and protect yourself. That's not that hard. People like you maybe, or others that you encounter at the hospital or in places that are forced to to go into dangerous places, maybe that's different, but you, you experience suffering in these times in a different way than we normally think about them. Where is God active in my life? How is God moving me in this time? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn or blessed are those who are sorrowful. I was thinking about that there's a difference between suffering like the suffering that people in the hospital right now with COVID. There's a difference between that kind of suffering and suffering that is the result of like principled action, like what the what is being written about here, right? Is these early Christians being persecuted for sticking to their guns, right? And this sort of principled sticking to their faith, um, even when it means persecution or hardship for them. And that brings about suffering. I think there's a difference between that kind of suffering that's the result of principled action and just suffering that is needless. Just, I mean, all suffering is unfair, but the kinds of suffering that we see that result from racism or disease or any sort of social injustice, I think that's a different kind of suffering. And we certainly don't glorify that kind of suffering. But I think there is something true about when we lean into our values and really cling tight to those and it brings suffering, there can be something about that that we experience as really powerful. Like the author writes in verse 16, um, your good conduct in Christ may be so that those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. There is something true about that too, that people who see us really standing strong, that can actually bring shame upon those who would persecute us. It's always hard for people who are suffering 
to hear a message that suffering is actually sent from God or um, a sign of God working in you when it's spoken by people who are not suffering. Uh, I think it's always good to remember that a lot of these texts, and Peter um, is an example of that, was written by someone who himself was under persecution and suffering. It wasn't somebody who was in a place of privilege or safety writing to people who are suffering, saying, they're there, your suffering's actually good for you, which is unfortunately how many of these verses are often used by people in control or people in power, writing to people who are oppressed, saying, you know, God's using your suffering, just endure it because it's okay. I don't have to suffer, but you know, what you're experiencing is okay. And I think we have to always be really cautious of how we interpret a text like this in from a place of security or safety. Let's move on to our our gospel reading. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back. Our gospel reading for Sunday is John 14, verses 15 through 21. You may remember last week, too, that we've moved from post-resurrection descriptions of Jesus to pre-death, pre-crucifixion, when Jesus is talking to his disciples um, the last night that he's with them. Jesus said to the disciples, if you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. This passage for me kind of flows from an earlier passage where Jesus talks about the new commandment to love one another. This is all about the love part of love and judgment. And I'm much more, I find myself much more comfortable in this part of the gospel when we're talking about love. The thing that struck me was the tension between love and obedience, that love isn't just this sort of squishy, fuzzy, warm thing, that there's a a, an expectation around obedience of the commandments. And um, the thing that actually came to mind was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's concept of chief grace, this forgiveness without repentance, which I think kind of goes back to the first passage that, or at least in my mind, it did. So that was what, it wasn't really a question. It was more just of an observation that came up for me. Yeah, like the, it feels like what Jesus is talking about is sort of saying to them, 
my way of being in the world is how you are now called to be in the world. And it's it's not so much obedience like following a list of rules, but embodying God in the same way that Jesus embodied God, which is real is really just to be full of love. The commandment is to be full of love and to live out of love in the world so that it overflows from us into the into the world. And I found that to be a huge stumbling block for a lot of the confirmands was this whole concept of belief. It's like you have to believe six impossible things. And I would often say belief is really about just aligning your life with the life of Jesus or aligning your life with the way that, that Jesus has lived his life. I think that's right, Anders. And I think especially in the Gospel of John, belief isn't about like intellectual assent to the creed. You know, it's like belief means relationship. And I think John, more than any of the other Gospel writers, that's what that's what belief is all about, which is so backwards for those of us now who live in the post-Enlightenment age. You know, it's like, belief to us is something we do with our brains, but John is talking about something we do, like we, like Pastor Bradley said, we embody belief, which is a hard concept to grasp. And I, so it makes sense that our confirmands struggle with this. And I think our job is to help all of us kind of live into this different way of understanding what it means to be one who believes in Jesus. I, I think one of the powerful parts of this a particular gospel reading is Jesus is trying to tell them God is going to be in the world through them in the same way that God was in the world through him. It's not like there's a time when somehow God was more present to people than God is now. This is kind of like a hinge sort of gospel to say, you know, I'm on my way out. But you now are going to be carrying this forward. And they're obviously stressed about that. They don't understand how they can do that. So Jesus says, my spirit's going to still be walking with you. Uh, the the advocate, the, the spirit, the um, and this is one of those great Greek words where there's no equivalent English translation. So it can mean all kinds of different things here. Um, the NRSV uses advocate, uh, paraclete, if for the church nerds who grew up learning all those things, uh, was actually from the Greek who would describe the Holy Spirit. The word that I love the most is companion, someone who is going to walk alongside you and partner with you as you try to walk this way of Jesus in the world. I love the phrase, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. That that beautiful description. I, I like the translation of Pericle to, to um, comforter. And I sometimes think of like the big down comforter, like that image of saying, I'm not going to leave you out there cold and barren. I'm going to come and, and wrap you in um, God's truth and God's love. And you'll be able to like in, in my being, be, be wrapped up in God and be able to be God's love in the world. Pastor Bradley, as you were talking, saying, you know, how 
now, so we are to embody God as Jesus embodied God. Like now God is going to be present in the world in us. And in John, one of the big theological ideas is incarnation, that God becomes human in Jesus. And now I hear you saying God is now going to be present in us. And that made me think of so many things. One, the body of Christ image, you know, that we now are the body of Christ. Um, And then that made me think also of the ELCA's tagline, God's work, our hands. Like we are actually embodying God, doing God's work in the world. And then that made me think of Teresa of Avila saying, God has no, I'm going to butcher it now. It's so much more poetic, (laughs) but basically God has no body, but ours, which I just think is like a fantastic, beautiful idea that we actually are God in the world. Anders, do you have anything left for us to consider? No, I'm just grateful. Thank you for including me. We're so glad that you're with us. We're actually interested to hear from all of you who are listening about what this means. We'd love for you to drop us a note at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. Thank you, Anders, for being with us today. Thank you to Paul D'Amico Carper for providing the music for us and to Marshall Saunders of Minnesota Podcasting for producing these podcasts for us. We hope you'll join us for worship every Sunday online at 9.30 a.m. You can find ways to connect with our worship services and with our Wednesday night gatherings on Gloria Day's website, gloriadaystpaul.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that wherever you are, God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.